So we go to the word. Let's pray. Let's ask God to bless it today as it speaks to our lives. Father, we're grateful. Uh, just seeing Matt up here and, and uh, that you have placed um, something inside of each one of us, this truth of the gospel that can't help but find an expression in the way that we live. It can't help but find its way out into how we speak and how we act and where we go. And so, Father, I, I pray that this morning as we read your word together, that that would be true. It is powerful. It is effective. It will produce that which you intend it to do. And so that's our prayer this morning. Would you make us willing recipients, hearers, obeyers of the truth of your word? Would you allow the truth of your gospel and your life-transforming power to be present in us today? Would you come and dwell in us even as we look at all of the weaknesses and our sin and our failure, that the great hope of the gospel is that you are able to take those and you're able to forgive sin and you're able to place in us your life and that we live it out so that the world would see you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, I am continuing on from last week if you were here. Uh, the second half of, of this section. We're looking at 12 verses 18 to 24. Real quickly, the, the author here, the preacher of the book of Hebrews, as he writes, as he preaches to us, as God speaks to us, is, is kind of landing the plane on his sermon. And he's wrapping up all of the themes that he has been teaching at this point. And he's bringing them together in a couple of images, a couple images that I really enjoy, that is, images of mountains. So let's hear the word of God, 18 through 24, Hebrews chapter 12. For you have come, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we come to this, this passage this morning, the preacher's main theme throughout his entire sermon here is the supremacy of Christ. It's the greatness of what Jesus has done for us on our behalf. And he's comparing constantly the old covenant the old system of approaching God with the new covenant, the new approach to God through his mediator. And now as he draws together these two approaches to God in the new and the old covenant, he uses these two mountains to represent these two approaches. In the first half of this passage that I just read, we see Mount Sinai as an approach to God through the old covenant, through the old system and the laws. It was man's best attempt to reach God, if you will, on his own. And we see it contrasted with Mount Zion, with the new covenant, with the, the gospel, God's provided mediator, God's perfect mediator, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. 
And we see the contrast, the relationship between the two, between Mount Zion and Mount Sinai. The author in this section that we're looking at really isn't telling us anything new. But he's putting together, he's forming for us, and he's pulling together all those themes, all those threads that he has been talking about. He has been teaching his time together in these two images these two forms that we can kind of wrap our brains around, our minds around, our hearts around, so we can understand what he has been telling us. So he gives us images, and he invites us to think about these images and allow these images to speak and to tell us of what it's like to approach God and how it is that we can approach him. And he uses these rhetorical devices of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And last week we looked at the significance of mountains throughout Scripture and the narrative of Scripture, and we found that mountains seem to be a, have a particular interest throughout the redemptive story of God. We find that God shows up and is accomplishing his plans on mountains and these physical locations. And so we could trace that throughout the Bible, if we wanted to, we won't do that right now again. But these two approaches that we see of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, they represent two different approaches to God. One is man's best attempts to reach him through the old covenant. One is God's uh, provision through Christ, how it is that sinful man can really reach God. And we looked at the, 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 the symmetry in this passage. There's seven descriptions of Mount Sinai. There's seven descriptions of Mount Zion. And as we looked at the descriptions of each of these, the question that we were asking is like, what is he telling us about each of these places? What is he telling us about that? How each of these places represent or they display relationship with God, what it feels like to approach God on, on these terms. We asked the question, what is it like to live in Mount Sinai? What's the relational climate like? What's it feel like? How do we approach God? And then how is it that we approach? What is it like on Mount Zion to approach God on, on those terms? And we emphasized last week looking at Mount Sinai that the experience for man to approach God through on those terms through Mount Sinai was a frightening one. It's terrifying as the, the author gives us this distillation of Exodus chapter 19 and 20, of, as, as Israel was brought into the presence of God at Mount Sinai, it was a terrifying place to be. It was frightening. They saw fire and darkness and gloom. They felt the earth shake underneath them. They saw a tempest as the very creation itself responded with violence at the presence of God as he shows up. This is what happens when God shows up and mitigated what did they hear? They heard this ominous warning of trumpets, the sound that got louder and louder. That was a warning call that God was in his temple. And it was a call to beware of his presence. And they heard these words that came out of the fire that frightened them so. They said, please, don't, don't speak anymore. It's so terrifying for us. And what we found at the climate of Sinai was one of distance. It was one that represented the immeasurable distance between a holy God and sinful man. It demonstrated the inapproachability that man had before God. And the author says, I want you to see this. You've not come here to this place, but you've come to Mount Zion. And the, and the author here, as he describes the, the backdrop, a relational air being filled with fear and tireless effort and guilty conscience and lack of freedom and slavery, he contrasts it with 
a different place with Mount Zion, this other hill, this place that Ryan read about from Psalm chapter 15. He says he invites us up to come into the presence of God. And he, he sets them side by side by contrast to see the beauty of what God has done in Christ as it's set against the backdrop and the gloominess and the fear and futility of Mount Sinai. And the Christian's journey must pass through this place of Mount Sinai in order to get to Mount Zion. We must come to the end of ourselves in order to come and find that we need another solution than just what we can bring to the table. So the last half here, I'm going to spend this morning looking at Mount Zion and the descriptions that the author gives to us. And again, he gives us images that we can wrap our minds around, our hearts around, and ask the question, what is it like to live on Mount Zion? What is it like to come to a relationship with God through God's mediator? What does it feel like? What's the experience of living in relationship with this God? And we're going to see it contrasted, the backdrop. And the author invites us. He invites us to say, what do you see? What do you feel? What do you hear in these descriptions? What's it like to live there? And one, the, the one thing I think that, that ties all the descriptions of Mount Zion together is this. That it's a place that was made perfectly for us. That it's a place that was made for us and we for it. That as we approach God through his mediator on his terms, what he has provided for us, we find the place that we were made for. And this place was made for us. Now, there's seven descriptions on this side, too, of Mount Zion that he gives us. And, and I thought initially I was pretty optimistic that I would cover most of them. And I realized we're not going to this morning. We're going to cover just a few of them. But these are the things I want us to be thinking about as we look at these descriptions. As we come to Mount Zion, what's it feel like? What's the experience like? Well, first, we come to a place that is fully alive. Secondly, we come to a place that's filled with a song. Thirdly, we come to a place of security and permanence. And finally, we come to a place where Jesus is. So those are my four points. I don't know if it's appropriate to have four points in a sermon, but I do. And so we're going to try to make our way through some of these this morning. So the authors, he, he writes here as he preaches in verse 22, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to a city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem. And really all three of those could be seen as the same as parallel Mount Zion to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. The emphasis there on the living God, maybe if you've read through this letter, you know that this is a key word, that living is a, is a common description of this author of God. That throughout we find that he says, you've come into the presence, you've come to a living God. And I think we should cause us to say, well, there's lots of attributes and characteristics we could think about that are true of God. Why does he select living? What is it about God being alive that is significant for them and is significant for us? Earlier on in, in chapter 11 with the authors writing about those who had lived by faith and they lived by faith and they didn't receive the things promised, were told that God, because they lived looking forward to what they hadn't seen but would see, says that God would build a city for them. That the city that they would find would be the city indeed of the living God, that they would find their home there. 
And throughout the, 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 the letter, we see that the author uses this. In chapter 3, we're told, we're warned to take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you of evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. In chapter 4, we're told that the word of God is living and active. In chapter 9, we're, we're told that how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. And then in chapter 10, he says, he warns, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. What is it about this fact that God is alive that is helpful for us? What is that so important for this author that he wants to emphasize throughout this letter? As we approach Mount Zion, we come to this place where the God is alive, is really there. And of course, if we want to set it against the backdrop of Old Testament history, we understand that the, the God is alive and he is characterized in the Old Testament as a living God in relation to, by contrast to, the idols of the nations made of what? Wood and metals and stone and those kinds of things that, that they would run to and they would look to. And they would worship they themselves, right, are manufacturing their own idols. Does that sound familiar? It's not just in the Old Testament where people run to, to things to find life. We as well manufacture things that we think that can give life that are not alive themselves. They are dead. And the author says, this place that you've come is the place of the living God. It's the city where he dwells, who is alive. When we think about what that means to be alive, it means that he is, he's engaged in every point in every way. We have never come or been in the presence of a being that is more alive than God, our Heavenly Father. It means he's engaged in the whole of our lives. He's alive in a way that we can't even imagine. God is not apathetic about anything. If you're thought about that, he's not apathetic about anything. There's nothing that God doesn't care about, isn't concerned about, isn't engaged in, isn't involved with, isn't passionate about. There's nothing he doesn't care in the severity with which he loves, the severity and intensity with which he is engaged in our lives is a frightening thing because he is never disengaged. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone who is distracted by something else? Maybe, guys, you're at a restaurant with your wife or your girlfriend, and you're sitting there, and, and you're trying to share your heart with her, and, and there's a television on and a football game on, and, and she's just kind of sitting there going, uh-huh, uh-huh, and you just know she's just not listening to you. She's just, she's just not engaged. She's distracted by something else. You ever had that feeling? God is never distracted. He is alive and present and engaged and intensely committed to us. Even if our prayers are oftentimes distracted, he is living and present with us. C.S. Lewis captures this picture of a living God in a, a pretty profound way in his book, Miracles, this excerpt. He writes this referring to a God who is alive. He said, it's always shocking to meet life somewhere. Light, I'm sorry, it's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Look out, we cry, it's alive. And therefore, there, this is the point at which many draw back. I would have done so myself if I could and proceeded no further with Christianity. And he describes different kinds of gods. An impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth and goodness inside our own heads. 
better still, a formless life force surging through us, a vast power which can, which we can tap best of all. But God, God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband. This is quite another matter. There comes a moment when children who have been playing with burglars um, hush suddenly. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him, we never meant it to come to that. We're still supposing he had found us. He goes on in another place to describe that really what we really want is kind of a half alive, half not alive God. We want a God that's alive enough to kind of give us meaning and purpose in some sort of kind of esoteric direction. But we really don't want a God that's so alive, so engaged as to meddle in our lives. We prefer that kind of life to not be present in us. But you see, the author wants them to get this picture. This is what it means that God is alive. The city, the place where he dwells, he is engaged in us. There's nothing that he doesn't care about. We have no idea who we're coming in contact with, who we're addressing when we talk about a God who is alive. One of my, my favorite movie series, at least in the modern era, is the uh, the Jason Bourne series. And we laugh about it. My family does. And maybe it's because I want to be Jason Bourne. I don't know. But anyway, um, the, it, they're all the same, right? Same storyline, you know, every one of them, even the, the latest one. But in, in every movie, each of the storylines, there's, there's a conversation that goes something like this. Conversation goes like this, where, where somebody's trying to apprehend him, right? They're trying to catch him, and they just, you know, and, and he's got a group of people they're working with, and, and uh, these people are kind of taking him lightly, dismissing him, oh yeah. And then they'll stop him, and he'll say, wait a second, you don't know who you're dealing with here. You have no idea who this person is. And if I could kind of ramp that up to an infinite degree, the author says, when I say that God is alive, You have no idea what I'm talking about. You have no idea the kind of person, the kind of being that we are coming to in Mount Zion. The very being that we're made to live in the presence of. The very being who's engaged in our lives in profound ways that we can't even imagine. And this fully alive God will not allow us to remain the same. He is committed to his sons and daughters becoming fully alive as well. His commitment is to transfer his life. To us, His commitment is to engage in our lives in such a way to transfer who he is and all that he has into us so that we would become models and images of who he is, that we would find life as well. And in John 10, Jesus says that I came that they might have life and have it abundantly, that they would have true life, not just filled with stuff, right? All the stuff we think constitutes life, but they would have me. They would have God. They would find him that they would know God and find eternal life there. And so to come to Mount Zion is to come to the fully alive God who promises to make us alive. And the author invites us to wrap our brains, our minds, our hearts around that picture of the God who is alive day in and day out of each of our lives and cares deeply. But he goes on. 
Uh, at the end of, of verse 22, he gives us another description of this place. And he says, you've come to innumerable angels and festal gathering. You've come to a place where there's innumerable angels. There's lots of them, right? And they are singing. You know, in studying scripture, as you read it, there's some passages sometimes you just come up to and you have no idea what they mean. So you just go right by. This was one of those. Initially, when I when I read, I went, I have no idea what that means. A bunch of angels saying, you know, what is that? And and the author says, I want you to see this, see this picture. I want you to hear these angels singing. And it's set against the backdrop of Mount Sinai, right? What was the noise? What did we hear on Mount Sinai? We heard trumpets, but they weren't making a song. They were trumpets of warning. They were warning to stay away. They were warning to keep your distance from this place, from this person. They were sounds of warning to, to stay away. And this, we have a celebratory, an inviting kind of sound as the angels, as they sing in festal gathering, as they gather to celebrate you can read throughout Scripture and early on even in Hebrews, you find that angels are messengers of God. They attend to the recipients of salvation. That, that when they show up, they're attending to something that God is doing in history, in time, and space. And so they're showing up to disclose and to declare something that God is up to. And you can find throughout history of Scripture, you find these different times when they show up. And here we have these myriads of angels gathered in celebration. And the question we ask is, what is their song? What is it that they're singing? The author invites us to listen to their song. What is it they're singing about? And we have some songs of angels in Scripture, right? You can go back to Luke chapter 2 as we celebrated at the incarnation at Christmas, right? The angels that showed up to sing to the shepherds, what were they doing? They were proclaiming glory to God in the highest. And this peace that would come and rest on those who would receive God's favor. But I think the best picture is in Revelation chapter 5. And if you'll turn with me there, Ryan read this chapter before. Revelation chapter 5. This, this picture in the throne room, right? As John comes in his revelation to see what's taken place in the throne room as God is about to unpack and to bring out his, his redemption plan. Verse 6, Revelation chapter 5, In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. What's going on here? The the lamb, right? There's There's a scroll that can't be opened. The seals can't be broken. And on that scroll is the very will of God to bring about the redemption of his people. And they're weeping and John is weeping because there's no one. And then the lamb steps up who's 
as though he were slain. He takes the scroll. He opens. He breaks the seals. He carries out the plan, the will of God that is printed on that scroll. And then what happens? These 24 elders, these four creatures sing. They break out into song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. What's the song? The content of the song is God's plan of redemption through the lamb, through the one who would lay his life down and by his blood would ransom people for God. Then the angels jump in. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, the living creatures and the elders and voice of of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Myriads and myriads of angels here in festal gathering, they've gathered to do one thing, to declare the greatness of what God has accomplished. This is their song. This is what they are singing. Myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. In the original language, you know what that means? You know how many that is? That is a lot. Innumerable angels have gathered to sing, to declare the praises of God. And so against the backdrop and the foreboding and the warning sounds of the trumpet of Mount Sinai and the terrifying voice, we have this beautiful song, this new song sung by the angels, the song of the one who was slain, the one who would invite us now to come near to the presence of God, not to stay away, not to keep our distance, but draw into the very presence of God. Indeed, all are invited. There are no barriers, no ethnic barriers, no gender barriers, no barriers to be brought into this relationship with him, to brought near to him. Can you imagine what that would have been like to hear what John heard? To hear what the shepherds heard as these angels, no doubt with incredible voices, powerful voices singing to God about what he has done. Well, this is what's interesting about this passage is that the author tells us that we have come to this place. We have come to innumerable angels singing this song. We have come to this place. And in one respect, as we come, guess what? We do get to hear this song. We get to hear this song. And how is it that we hear this song? We hear this song as we gather as God's redeemed people, and sing that song. We echo what they are singing. We participate with that song in the declaration of God's redemption, of his salvation for us. We get to to sing along with them. So as we gather on Sundays, when we gather at any point in time and declare that message, we are enjoying the very presence of God in Mount Zion. And the amazing thing about this song is that we get to sing it in a way that no angel ever will. We get to sing it as those who have been rescued. We get to sing it as those who have enjoyed God's work in our lives, who taste it. They sing about what God is doing on our behalf. And so, as well, we will sing it in the future along with them of our Redemption when it is completed, when our adoption is finalized. So this day is a rehearsal. 
These days are rehearsals for that day and we will sing. And as we do, we'll be drawn up into this song of the angels, a celebration of them. And the author says, I want you to see this picture. I want you to hear these words, these songs of the angels. This is what it means to come to Mount Zion. It's the place of the living God. It's the place where there is a song. It's filled with this song. And as we're drawn up into that, as those of the redeemed, we taste a little bit what that means to be in God's presence. But then the author goes on to describe that this place of Mount Zion is a place of security and permanence. A place of security and permanence. In verse 23, he says, And you have come to the assembly of the firstborn and the enrolled in heaven. The assembly of the firstborn and the enrolled in heaven. Two very significant pictures for us. Very um, vivid pictures. This, this first, the assembly of the firstborn, this picture, this word assembly is the same word that's often translated church. It's the, the Greek word ecclesia or ecclesia, however you want to say that. And basically the, the term itself is to be called out of. It's to call and from and to be called from. That's this, this picture of calling. And in the, in the Old Testament for the Hebrews, this idea has a, a vivid backdrop, a, a picture. This, this term assembly is drawn from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Where we have the very presence of God there where, where Moses says that God had said to assemble for me the Israelites. Assemble them at none other place than Sinai. Assemble my people there. And you see the picture there, the image of that is that those whom God had redeemed, who had rescued out of Egypt, he called to himself at Mount Sinai to assemble them there so that I might speak to them. And so this, this is the backdrop of this term. And the, and, the, and the author here uses this term from that. He says, but we have come at Mount Zion. We've come to the assembly of the firstborn. We have come. The one who has called us, who has assembled us out at my Zion. The one who has redeemed us, he calls us there. And the emphasis on this calling of the assembly is on the caller, not the ones who are called. See, our identity is not the fact that we have been, that we have called ourselves, but that God has called us. We didn't call ourselves, God did. And his calling was effective such that he brought us to himself. So the, so the author says here, I want you to see you're the assembly. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn, the assembly, the ones who've been assembled around Christ, the firstborn of God, and around his work and what he has accomplished. And then the, the assembly of the firstborn and the, those who have been enrolled in heaven enrolled in heaven again this picture right that we picture right a, a list a role some sort of the book of life is described throughout revelation this this place where all those who are gods are, are written down right all those who have his life that's this picture here who are called to this are enrolled in heaven or names are written there Revelation chapter 13 describes this book and it says that the names that were written there were written before the foundation of the world. The names there were written before the foundation of the world. And this offers great security, great permanence for those who would come to see this. Even Jesus speaks of this book of life as being enrolled in Luke chapter 10. You might remember that when the 72 return, he sends them out. He gives them all kinds of power and they see incredible things happen. And the, 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 the disciples come back and they, they say, 
You wouldn't believe what happened. And they rejoice that they saw incredible things. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that you saw demons fall, but rather rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. It says you have been, your names have been written there by virtue of what God has done. And even the form of the verb enrolled is, is helpful for us. I know just enough Greek to be dangerous. Some of you like this kind of thing, but the, the form, the tense of the verb is that it's a perfect. And it's also a passive in voice. What does that mean? It means that it, it, it's emphatic. It means it demonstrates the permanence of what's been inscribed. Who have been enrolled. It's there. It's stuck. It's indelible. It can't be changed. It's certain. That's what it means. And it means that it's a passive. It's in, in the voice. Meaning that it's been done to us. Right? It's not something that we did. It's something that God has done to us. He has etched our names. As we have placed our faith in his mediator, our names are etched in the book of life. We didn't call ourselves. We didn't rescue ourselves. We didn't etch our names into the book of life. But God, the living God, did this for us. And so our security and our permanence among Zion is connected with that reality of what he has accomplished for us. It's rooted in the living God who has done all this for us. I don't know where, where, where you are today or what this week has been like for you, but I would guess that each and every one of us through diff, throughout different seasons and chapters of our lives wrestle, struggle, doubt that security assurance can even be possible. As we look at our own sin, our own failure, our own greed and lust, our own envy and hatred. We see those things in our lives. We wonder, is security, is some sort of permanence, is some sort of real sense of stability even possible? And the author says, yes. And I think the call for us is to meditate on this truth that our names are written there. We've been called in place and it's his work. He's the one who called. He's effective. He is able to, and has written our names. And that is our hope. I grew up in a tradition that, that they were afraid to give any kind of security. They were afraid to talk about the assurance of salvation because the fear was that if you had it, that somehow you would go off the rails. That, that, that that's where you would end up. But I, 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 I argue that security and permanence of what God has done and placing the work on Him does exactly the opposite. It enables us to stand firm, to persevere, to endure. It enables us to say no to temptation. It doesn't create ambivalence. It doesn't create apathy. It doesn't create and cause licentiousness in our behavior. It does exactly the opposite. It only grows, it only cultivates obedience, devotion, commitment to the God who has saved us. And so the author says, when you come to Mount Zion, you've come to a place of security, a place of permanence, because it's about what he has done, not what you have done. And our response to that is one of commitment, of endurance, and enables us to stand firm. To the authors, he says, as you've come to this, you've come to the living God, you've come to a place that's filled with the song of redemption, you've come to a place of security, of 
permanence as you understand your name written there by the very blood of Jesus himself. And then finally, my last point here in verse 24, I'm jumping a couple of these descriptions. And he says, you've come to Jesus. I tried to come up with some sort of creative final point, and all I could come up with was Jesus, because the author says, you've come to Jesus. When we come to Mount Zion, we've come to the very presence the very power of God, Jesus himself, the, the God incarnate, the God who embodies the very voice of God and has brought God near to us. He says we've come to him. We can access Mount Zion. We can access all that we were made to have through the very presence of Christ and what he has done for us. And the author finishes this, this section with a very important image, this image, right? We have two bloods that speak the sprinkled blood of Jesus and the blood of Abel. Two that represent the two different covenants, the two approaches to God. They're represented in those two mountains that are there. And the author says that we've come to this sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, a more gracious word than the blood of Abel. And the question is, what are they each saying? What's the message? What can we hear from each of them? What is it? Let's look at the blood of Abel first. The message of the blood of Abel. We have to go back to Genesis 4, and I'll just explain what happened there. You might know the story, but as, as Cain was jealous and envious of his brother and hated him because God accepted Abel's sacrifice over and above his, what did he do? He took his own life. He took Abel's life. He killed him. And then we have God approaching, right, coming to Cain and saying, where's your brother? And he says, my brother, am I my brother's keeper? And God says, what is this I hear? I hear the voice of your brother's blood crying to me from the ground and you shall be cursed. What is it that God hears? He hears a message. He hears a message from the blood of Abel crying to me. And it's interesting, right? All crime, all harm, all wrongdoing, all sin is ultimately against God. And so it cries out, it speaks, it calls for him to bring justice. In Old Testament language, what this blood is speaking, it's the message is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, blood for blood. The message of the blood of Abel is justice is to be served. Vengeance must be brought. Recompense, retribution is the message of the blood of Abel. For wrongs to be righted, there must be penalty, there must be payment, there must be death, there must be other blood shed. And so we see that the same, essentially the same message of Mount Sinai is the same message to call. It's the best that man can do before a holy God as we approach him on those terms, as we look at our own lives, as we see our own sin, we see what, what's there, our failure, our wrongdoing, how we've harmed others, how we've harmed God, how we've maligned him, how we've hated and lusted and envied. When we see those things in our lives and we hear this message of the blood of Abel should leave us, we should shudder in fear because we know it calls for justice. We know it calls for vengeance. We know that it calls for our life and before this message our lives must be forfeit there is nothing else by the blood by this message 
of the blood that Abel brings. There is no atonement. There's a book written a number of years ago by Ian McEwen, um, who is an atheist, and it's called Atonement. And the storyline of, of it carries a powerful question, even as an atheist, he asks the question. And here's the question. How is it that we, when we have done harm to others, how is it that we can be atoned for? How is it that wrong can be undone? How is it that we can find atonement or covering for our sins, our wrongdoing? Even as an atheist, he asks the question, the storyline is a powerful one, although futile. As in this story, this young girl who out of her own, her own kind of confusion and her hatred does something that hurts two people. And, and the whole storyline shows the, the damage that was done by what she has done, her misunderstanding as well as her own hatred. Her own sister is hurt in another man. Their whole lives are transformed as a result of what she has done. And her whole life is, is lived trying to undo and figure out what do I do with that harm that I've done? How can I undo that? And the story ends in this futile ending when she realizes, and you, there's a spoiler, I'm not going to give it as you find out the whole story. She's trying to make that right. And she ends with these words. These words at the end of it. Um, the problem these 59 years has been this. How can a novelist achieve atonement when her out with her absolute power of deciding outcomes? She is also God. There is no there is no one, no entity or higher form that she can appeal to or be reconciled with or that can forgive her. There's nothing outside her. In her imagination, she has set the limits and the terms. No atonement for God, no atonement for novelists, even if they are atheists. It is always an impossible task. And that was precisely the point. The attempt was all, do you catch the futility? There is no atonement outside of what God would accomplish. Even for an atheist, right? And the, and the author of, of a commentary I read on this, one of the reviewers, he, he writes, if God is fictional, atonement is too. In other words, as we hear these words of the cry for justice from the blood of Abel, we realize we're in the same spot. There is no place for atonement. There is no forgiveness that our lives are forfeit in light of that. But the author goes on to say there's a, a better word. There's, there's one that, that the sprinkled blood of Jesus cries out with a different message. The mediator, the perfect once and for all sacrifices. He speaks, he proclaims, we might even say he sings a different, a more gracious, a different outcome, a different message than an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The message of the sprinkled blood of Jesus that the author tells us about, that we've learned about through this whole message it speaks forgiveness. It speaks atonement, covering for sin and wrongdoing. It speaks about reconciliation and restoration that is possible for those who come to him. He doesn't do away with justice. He rather satisfies it through his work. He doesn't pretend that it's not there. There's justice to be served. Blood must be spilled, and through the sprinkled blood of Christ, we find life there. John Calvin wrote this. He said, he, he writes, He alone, that's Jesus, through whom the Father is reconciled to us and renders his face 
serene and lovely to us that we may come without fear. The author invites us to come near to Mount Zion, to come into the presence of God, to approach him on these terms through the word that the sprinkled blood of Jesus offers us forgiveness, atonement and cleansing. To come into the presence of the living God who is at work in our lives. To come and find the song and allow that song to resonate in our hearts of the redeemed. To enjoy the security and permanence of what he has accomplished. And to come to Christ, the one whose blood speaks exactly what we need to hear. For us to, by faith, receive, believe, and trust in that is to find life alone in in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this message, this call, this beauty. You're you're a fully alive God. And even today, I pray that that life would be at work in, in our lives, convicting of sin, calling us closer, strengthening, enabling us to to deal with temptation in our lives, enable us to, 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 for Christ to be formed in us. And so that's our desire. Would you do that in each one of us this morning? Father, we uh, pray, I think, pray for Matt as he goes out. Can you pray for him? I pray for, again, a number of those who are sick and ill in our congregation. I uh, pray that you would you'd strengthen there. Uh, I, I pray, um, think of, of Andrew Brunson, the uh, EPC pastor in Turkey, is imprisoned. And I, I pray for him there, Father, that you would strengthen him as he, as they await figuring out how to release him. And so I pray, pray for him. I pray for our missionaries that we've sent out as grace. I see Ben Harvey here, Father, and I pray that you'd be with him and that you would strengthen him in his ministry at K-State. Uh, Father, help us to, to, to walk closely with you, to to live, to, to move further up and further in into the very presence of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.